we're in a series on the book of John. We've been looking at John 13 and John 14 especially. We've gone all of John all the way up there. But at John 13, we started slowing down. And, and part of the reason is because this is such an intense time of teaching for Jesus. I mean, just understand, it's the Last Supper. We're at, right now, we're in John 14, 7 through 11, and they're still at the table. He's teaching them intensely. So let me read it, and then we'll, we'll continue to talk about it. Verse 7 of John 14. You can uh, read your Bible on your phone or just follow along. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been around you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am the Father? I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So they're at the Last Supper, all right? The focus for Jesus is the coming cross. We're told earlier he's troubled. This, this is, you know, the whole thing with Judas and he knows what's coming, and so he's dealing with it. And he's teaching them how to deal with those types of things also, how to live after he's gone. And so we are going to hear in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, we're going to hear some of the most important things that we can hear, and that he's teaching them, and we get to eavesdrop. We get to hear it. We get to glean the truth from it that they got. He's told them that he's leaving. Judas has slipped out into the night by now. Peter has been told that he will deny Jesus. And it's interesting, you look at this, he's strangely quiet. One of the first times in Peter's life that he doesn't have much to say because he's been sobered, he's been hit by this. It's sinking into them that something horrible is going to happen. They don't know exactly, they're still not quite getting it all, but they know something horrible is going to happen and they're worried. So he starts off in, in, in chapter 14 with, don't let your hearts be troubled. He's saying, this is how you're going to deal with, with, with the trouble, the tribulation, the difficult times in your life right now. And this is for us. How do we deal with these things? Well, in verses 1 through 3, a couple weeks ago, we saw that there's this confidence that we need, right? We need a confidence to be able to navigate life successfully, a confidence that is, Jesus says, available to us. And then he talked about the nature of the confidence. And he was saying, it's a home that you're longing for. He starts saying, I prepare a place for you. That's the longing of the human heart. And then he says, how do we get that confidence? And he talks about belief and what's involved in that. We learn about Jesus and, and trusting him. And he, and he implies it's a lifelong process that we're going to go through. And then in, in uh, verses 4 through 6, he elaborates on the fact that it's a relationship the way to the Father is through a relationship, not through a set of rules. It is truth and life. He is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and life. Truth and life now in the future. Now and in the future, I should say. He's the giver of life. He's the meaning of life. He's telling them, I am the way. I am the journey, and I am the destination. And then we talked about how it's exclusive and inclusive. This life comes through Jesus. 
very exclusive, but it's inclusive. It is open to anyone, open to all. So Jesus is teaching them. He's teaching us the resources we have for living in a very difficult world. And these themes keep repeating. They're going to repeat again. And this, he, he keeps hammering these things over and over. And, and, and for, for many of us, these may be familiar themes. But that's okay because we need to review and repeat and look again at familiar themes because some of them are keys for our walk with Jesus Christ. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage that we just read is there's some looking. Philip, Philip is looking. It says in verse 7 and in verse 8, If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father, and that will be enough for us. So Philip is looking for something. He says, show us the father, and that will be enough. This Greek word for enough is an interesting word because it's it's not just like you fill something, like if you have a cup and you fill it just to the brim. So it's, it's, or you're filling it and somebody goes, that's enough. It's this idea that you become, that this is enough to be satisfied, to be content. It's more than just enough. It's an overabundance of enough. I've got enough. He says, if you show us the Father, that's what we need. I'll never worry again if I see the Father. I'll never be anxious again if I see the Father. I'll never be sad again if I see the Father. I'll never be lost again if I see the Father. I'll never be discouraged again if I see the Father. But think about what he's saying. Implicit in that, show me the Father. That's enough. What is he saying to Jesus? You're not enough. That's kind of the implied thought that's coming through. Philip is looking for something. But see, Jesus is going to correct him here because he's looking. He's looking for the right thing, but in the wrong way. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Philip is giving voice to the human condition in this world. Show us the Father. We, well, I want a relationship with the Almighty. I want to know the everlasting. I want to know eternity. You know, we've talked about this before, the Bible. One of the things I love about the Word of God is it does not minimize or play down the suffering that's in the world. It, says, it looks at it with clear-eyed vision, saying, this, it can be hard. The other thing is when it addresses the big questions of life that oftentimes people don't like to talk about. It's very clear, straightforward, blunt even. So Philip is giving voice to the human condition of this world. But here's the thing. People see this all around us. Not that long ago in the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof, one of their opinion writers, wrote this. He said, despite our modern impulse to retreat from supernatural religion, we can't escape the deep longing for spiritual connection. That's what Philip's crying out for. This is the human condition despite our best efforts to get rid of the world of the supernatural. See, he wrote that. He saw it. He says, we, we try so hard in our culture to act like, oh, there is no God. There is no supernatural. It's just everything. We're very rational. It's the here and now. It's just what we can see. But Nicholas Kristof is saying that the default impulse in all of us is spiritual, our deepest longing, our loftiest aspiration. I want to be in the presence of the divine. This is what we want. This is the cry of our heart. I want to know him, and I want him to know me. 
What could be more important? Think about that. If there is a God, and he is the creator and sustainer of the universe, what could be more important than knowing him? Nothing. There's nothing higher than that. And interestingly, in our TV shows, in our movies, we see all the time, we're hit all the time with the supernatural. Things that, things that are superhuman. You know, maybe you're watching Stranger Things right now. I'm watching, I'm not. It's scary. I'm not watching it. I'm not watching it. I've heard a few of the episodes. My daughter is watching it, and I am sitting in the other room on my computer playing a game but I hear it, and every once in a while, I get up from the dining room and walk outside because that show is stinking scary, right? But think about it. Think about it. Why do people love that show? The supernatural. There's something bigger than us out there. There's something greater than us out there. We see it in all kinds of ways. We see it in the things we see. You can see it in Star Wars. You can see it in the Marvel universe. You can see all these things. They, they answer something we're crying out for. They give an incomplete answer. Basically, what they're doing is acknowledging that this is the cry of mankind. But there is no answer that they can give. We're haunted by this deep impulse for spiritual connection. And we can try to deny it, but we can't help it. We're made for it. Let me give you an illustration of that. There's an atheist uh, writer who's written a number of books. His name is Julian Barnes. He wrote the book, Nothing to be Frightened of. And I like him because he's blunt and he's honest. And he wrote this in his book. Um, he said, I didn't put it up there. He said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. You think, what is he saying there? I don't believe in God. My mind says there is no God, but my heart aches for him. My heart aches for him. See, Philip here, Philip knows something. He's seen something. For the last three years, as he's walked around and followed Jesus, he's seen heaven and earth overlap. He's seen eternity and, and, and the physical time right now crashing into each other, sometimes in incredible ways like these tectonic plates, you know, that, are, that when they move, they create, you know, tidal waves, tsunamis, they, they, all that. He's seen this in his very life. He's watched it happen. He's seen healings where the divine intervened. He's seen miraculous feedings. He's seen the dead brought back to life. He's seen the words and the deeds of Jesus that are supernatural in origin and effect. He sees this man where somehow heaven and earth are simultaneously present. It's like we live oftentimes, um, I talked to a guy a while back and he says, I don't really believe that stuff. I, I live in the real world. I live in the real world. We got the real world here. There's the ideal world up here. The ideal world is where children aren't abused. The ideal world is where wars aren't happening and innocents aren't suffering. Where there's justice, you know, and peace and righteousness all the time. That's what we would call for us as Christians. That's where God is. That's heaven, in a sense. But there's the real world, and we live here. And there's this, there's this huge gulf or this wall that separates them. 
And then one day, over 2,000 years ago, the ideal world broke through into the real world. And Jesus became a man. And so, so Philip has seen this. He's seen the overlap of the seen and the unseen. He's sensing that Jesus is leaving somehow, and he's just saying, please, please let me see the Father. That will answer all my needs. And it's interesting. Julian Barnes, this writer, he senses that too. And we sense it. Things like love and joy and grief, these have a spiritual side to them that cannot be explained adequately. And Julian Barnes, he writes in his book that when it grips him the most, this, this feeling, this sense of longing, it grips him the most in, in things like art and music. And interestingly, he said some, some uh, uh, religiously themed art and music. He, he talks about listening to Mozart's Requiem, all right, which is about death and about a person going to heaven. And, uh, and he hears words. He hears words like this, king of awful majesty, who freely saves the redeemed. Save me, O fount of goodness. Remember, blessed Jesus, that I am the cause of thy pilgrimage. Remember me in your kingdom. He hears words like that put to music, you know, written by Mozart, and and he, he senses, I wish that was true, because I would want, I want that. I want that, but, but I don't believe it right? And he, he says, he calls it something, he writes this in his book, he calls it the haunting hypothetical of the non-believer. And what he means by that is simply this, what if it's true? What if it's true? Because he realizes if it was true, if it was not a myth, then that would suddenly mean that love and justice and peace and beauty have their foundations outside of this world, He says, I can't believe that, but I wish for it. I wish for it. What if it's not a myth? What if it was true? Then, he writes later, then all my sins, all my shame, all the regrets that I carry with me would be wiped away by a merciful God and I could live forever. He says, this is what it means. I'd live forever in light with him. What if it was true? The haunting hypothetical of the non-believer. He's saying, this is what I grapple with in my life because I have decided there is no God, but I ache for him. And Jesus says, it's true. It's true. He says, Philip, Jesus says, Philip, what you're looking for is right here, right now. This is what you're looking for. You want to see the Father? You want relationship with the divine? It's here. It's here for you. This is what we're looking for. This is what Jesus is talking about. This will calm the troubled heart. And remember that word troubled. You know, we, we, we think of it like, oh, man, I'm really struggling with this math problem. Will somebody help me out how to tip this person? Oh, so difficult. That's not troubled. That word troubled can mean to be torn to pieces, to be pulled in different directions so that it, so that it rips you apart, that you just are in agony over it. And he's saying, This will calm the troubled heart. Knowing this will calm the troubled heart. So Philip is looking for the right thing. And so now we're going to talk about seeing. In verse 9, 
Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So now Jesus, he's reprimanding him a bit here. He's correcting him. He's working on the where. He's working on the how, how he is looking. And he corrects us also in this. Because Philip is looking for something extra kind of off in the future. And Jesus is saying, no, it's right here, right now. Eternal life, that Zoe life, life with meaning and purpose and eternal significance is right here, right now. It's not in, you know, pie in the sky by and by. It's not that. Jesus talks a lot in John. We've gone over this a lot about knowing and seeing. And we've looked at this to know that it's more than just intellectual. <clears throat> it includes the intellectual, but it's more than that. Um, oh, I forgot to bring it up. I have this wood carving that someone gave me. You know, it's about that long, and it's just carved with lines and whatever. And they say, what do you see when you look at it? And the first time I ever saw one of those, I was like, uh, and then, it was, oh, oh, it's Jesus. It says Jesus. Like, when I couldn't figure it out, I still saw it. I saw every aspect of it. But suddenly, the meaning or the hiddenness of it came through, and I really saw it. A while back, somebody, somebody showed me one they'd made, and they said, what do you see? And I said, oh, I'm not really sure, but I'm pretty sure it's Jesus. And he's like, no, it says mercy. Where do you see Jesus in that? You know, I, I saw it, but I didn't see it. And so Jesus talks about seeing, and it's this idea that it's more than just looking at something. Maybe it's like if you've ever had that experience of tasting something you've never tasted before and it's delicious. You've heard about it, but you'd never tasted it. And you just go, ah. Oh. My friend, Denny Perkinson, he grows, he grows vegetables. He's like, he's got this small farm that he grows all these vegetables. And I went out and saw him one time and we're walking over and I think he must laugh at me sometimes because I'm saying, what is that? And he's like, what is that? That's lettuce, man. You know, because I'm just like clueless, right? So he reaches down, snip, and picks this thing up. Says, here, try this. And I was like, uh, what is it? And he said, it's asparagus. I said, you just clipped a piece of asparagus? I didn't even know it grew like that. You clipped that off the ground and you want me to eat it? He said, yeah, it's good. Have you ever had it raw? And I said, I've never had asparagus. This, this is a few years ago. Yes, I led a deprived life. I've never had asparagus. I've never eaten asparagus in my life. And he's like, you're a 60-year-old man, and you've never, I said, I never have, well, try it. I said, no, I, don't, I don't like asparagus. <laughs> and he said, how do, you, how do you know? I said, well, first, it's a vegetable. And that's off to a bad start, right? Second, it's green. This is like double. And I said, third, I never eat VeggieTale characters. I, I don't eat, I don't eat junior. I don't eat junior, right? So get that off. You guys looking at it too much. And he said, he was a little upset. Just try it. I just clipped a fresh piece of asparagus. And so I, tried, I was like, this is really good. I don't know if you've tried it raw. It's, if it's fresh and raw, it's really good. 
this is really good. Now, I've announced to my family, to my wife and to my family, I like asparagus. <laughs> it was like, oh, everybody fainted. You know, it's green. It looks like junior. How can you eat it? But I didn't know. I didn't know. And then I tried it, and I knew. It opened my eyes, so to speak. And now, I, you know, 60 years, I didn't know. I once was blind, and now I see. And this is, now, now there's a biblical example of this. There's a biblical example of this. We talked about it a little bit at Easter, but let me remind you of it. In John chapter 20, Peter and John are running to the tomb. Remember that? John gets there first. And what does it say? He stopped at the entrance, and he looked. He, he saw. He saw. And the Greek word there for saw is just the regular old word of just seeing. Nothing special about it. He just saw. He didn't know exactly what it meant. He hadn't really figured it out, but he saw. Now, it says Peter arrives, and Peter goes into the tomb, and then it says he sees. He sees the covering. He sees, he sees it. Now, this is a different word. This is the word thereo, which is where we get the word theory. And what it means is, that word means is that Peter looked, and he furiously started trying to think, to reconcile, to figure out what's going on. This shows us there is no way they expected the resurrection, right? He, he's looking, and he's trying to figure out the implications of what he sees. He's running it through his mental grid, right? So he's saying, the clothes are laying there as if the body just passed right through them. The, the, face, the face covering is just laying where the face was, but now it's just on the rock. How could that have happened? How could that have happened? No one could have stolen that body without disturbing all that cloth. So why is it just laying there as if somebody took his body, untook all that stuff, and then folded it back up the way it was when he was in it and laid it all out. How, why would anybody do that? That's so ridiculous. I can't imagine. There's no other explanation unless he passed through it and came back to life. See, he's, he's theorizing. He's thinking it through. This, this is what we do as believers. This is what God wants us to do. He wants us to look at the evidence. Jesus even says there, Look at the evidence. He's going to say that in just a minute. Think it through. Come to an, a, a, an idea of what could be going on. Saying, do I believe this? Do I believe this? So Peter goes in and he, he sees, this is that word, this furious process of searching for meaning. And uh, then John comes in. And it says, because it already said, he, he, he saw the inside. Then it comes in, and it says he sees. And it uses a different word, a word that leads to and the very next word. He sees and believes. Peter's furiously going through this stuff, going, yeah, what? Uh-uh. John's doing the same thing, but he comes in, and he just goes, oh. he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And so that's this idea. Scripture talks all the time about the importance of us to see more than just to see the, the outward, physical, what, what our eyes pick up, but to see deeper, to see meaning, to see where belief is involved, where we take that step of faith. And God honors this. Jesus is pressing Philip. He's pressing us. We need to go through that, that, that process. We need to think through what are the implications as a follower of Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead and the God of the universe now lives in me, what are the implications of that? What are the implications for my work, 
What are the implications for shopping? What are the implications for friendships? What are the implications for neighbors? What are the implications for how I treat my family? What are the implications of that? So Jesus is pushing Philip to process the implications, and he's pushing us to think through the implications also. Philip is saying, I know Jesus, but I want more. I I, I want enough. And Jesus is saying to him, I'm all you need. I am enough. There's a great question for us. Is Jesus enough for you? Is he enough? When I get anxious and I worry about something and I start thinking, why am I worried? If I'm really honest with myself, I'm worried because I don't think God can handle it. So I've got to take that burden onto me. I've got to start thinking about it. I've got to start thinking about the possibilities. I've got to think about what, what could happen. What, and, I, and of course, I don't know if you're like me, but I always run to the worst possibilities. I always think of the worst possibilities that could happen. Right? So I get anxious. And when I get anxious, what am I saying? Jesus, you're not enough. I've got to take this. i got this. Let me handle it. Which, that's, just, that's the stupidest thing a person could say to God, right? I got this. Take a break, right? That, that's just incredible. And when I'm anxious like that, thinking through the implication tells me I, Jesus isn't enough for me right now. At this point in time, I'm not trusting Jesus. He's not enough. And Jesus now, is, he's forcing us, he's forcing Philip to think that through. He always does this. He does it all the time in Scripture. Mark 10, the rich young come into, he wanted eternal life. He says, I'm a good person. I'm a churchgoer. And scripture says it very poignant. He says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus said, man. He saw him for who he was. So he's told him, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And that's it. And it says the man went away sad. Why? Because wealth and the comfort that it brings was his top priority. Not eternal life. Not Jesus. Not God. Wealth and the comfort it brings. In John 4, the woman at the well, Jesus and this woman are having a, and we went over this when, when we were early part of this series, deep theological discussion. And then Jesus just cuts to the core of the matter. He says, go get your husband and let's talk more. Let's really talk about this. And she says, well, I have no husband. And he says, I know you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, but the man you're living with now is not your husband. So what did he do? He put his finger right on the problem. What is the core here? The problem for her is, is it's sex. It's relationship. It's in that culture with a woman. It's security. Having the security to be under the protection and umbrella of a man in a very male-oriented society is so important. So, so sex and, and comfort and relationship, security, I, I think I should say, is, is, is her priority. In Mark 3, Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and it says the Pharisees decide they're they're going to start plotting to kill him. Why? Because he's a threat to their power and to their position. See, power and position to them is more important than Jesus. And for us, hey, money and comfort can be very alluring, right? Is Jesus enough? Sex and relationship and security can mean so much. Is Jesus enough? Power and position can give you so much, but is Jesus enough? Because as a church, we are called to serve 
to meet needs and to glorify God in it. So that means we have to put those things aside and focus on what's important because those things can get in the way. They're not wrong in and of themselves, but they are not to be our focus or our priority. I was reading a writer the other day, and he, he says, this sums it up. We're to be promiscuous with our money, but not with our bodies. And I was like, okay, I, I, I see what you're saying there. As Christians, that's what we're to be known as. But what we can struggle with, what I can struggle with, I'll own this right along with you, is that if I'm honest, sometimes Jesus is not enough. And something else grabs me whether it's wealth or power, relationship or comfort or security, authority. They're not wrong. But when we treasure them, they start to own us. And that's the key. Is Jesus enough? So we're all looking for enough, just like Philip. Jesus says how we see him is the key. So how can we see him better? And and how can we then see the changes in our lives that we want? the relationship with God that we want for ourselves. So we move to believing, looking, seeing, and then believing. This is in verses 10 and 11. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Now, this word for believe, we've talked about this before, just want to highlight it. It's a a relational word, especially when it's used in reference to God. It it has this idea of trust, which trust is a very relational word. I mean, when you think about it, if you trust someone, it's because you have decided they're trustworthy. That's relational. It's a relationship word. You trust them, you have confidence about the truth of something they're saying or something they're doing or whatever it may be. And Jesus says, believe my words. He says, and look at the evidence. See, it's not blind faith. There's faith, but it's not blind. And Jesus is saying, I want you to trust me. Why? Because I'm about to show you. Remember where we're at. It's the Last Supper. I'm about to show you how much I love you. You will see the evidence of my love. And when you see that love, it will be enough. And that's the heart of the matter. It's this relational love. I love you. I will never let you go. There is a love. This is amazing. There is a love that sees you clearly and completely and still loves you anyway. That's a love we can rest in. That is a love that is enough. In verse 7, Jesus had told them, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, I want to highlight that. From now on, you do know him and have seen me. From now on, Jesus is saying, something is happening now that turns everything. This is the turning point. This is the focus. This is when everything changes from now on. What is it? In the next 72 hours, he says, you will see me, the real me, because I am enough. Peter's ask, uh, Philip's asking for something he doesn't really know what he's asking for. He's just saying, I want to see God. And you know, if you know your Bible, that's really not a good idea. Throughout, throughout scriptures, we see how that can end badly for people. God is holy. We are not. Moses said, I want to see you. And God said, nope, not going to do it. Not going to do that. He says, we'll, we'll work something out here, but you are not going to see me because it'll kill you. Isaiah is transported to see God in a dream or a vision or whatever it is. And immediately, what does he say? 
He says, woe is me. And that word woe means finished. It means done. It means over. He says, woe is me, for I am, uh, some translated, I am undone. Some say I am destroyed. That's a really good translation of it. He says, he says woe is me, I'm a goner. And then it says, for I am about to be dead. Because I've seen God. I've seen God. And so, you know, God immediately works. He says, but, but he says, I'm exposed. That's what Isaiah, one way you can translate it. I have been exposed. He sees all of me. Every bit of me. The deepest, darkest secrets in me. The deepest, darkest places of my heart, of your heart. And he loves you. He says, I am exposed. It's like this. Um, years ago, my wife and I, somebody gave us a gift card. And we went to a really nice restaurant. And uh, you go in, and it's just beautiful inside. And, and I had to go to the restroom. And so I went in the restroom, and I was just like, I could live in this restroom. This is the most beautiful restroom I've ever been in my life. There's all this stuff that I never thought I had, never thought I'd need. You know, there's all, it's just, this is amazing. It's this beautiful wood, you know, and the lighting's kind of low, not, not, not too dark, but kind of low. So everything just looks wonderful. And you go to the mirror, and it's, as soon as I walked up, I go, oh, this is one of those mirrors that make you look better than you really are, right? You know, there's, especially, I think, in clothing stores, you know, they make you look skinnier or whatever. And somebody not too long before that had told me that I looked like somebody famous, right? And I looked in that mirror, and I was like, they are right. I do. I do. Yep. Yep. Spitting image of Bruce Willis. Yeah. Right? So I'm thinking pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Love this restaurant. Go. We have a great meal. It's a great time. We go back out. It's still daylight. It's bright sunshine. And it has these big uh, windows, right? And so I'm walking by the, the window and I look over and I'm just kind of like, <sighs> looking at myself. But this bright sunlight and the window's not helping me like that mirror did. And I realized I look more like this. <laughs> That's. That's what it was. And Danny, if you're watching, I mean, no disrespect. I just want to say that just in case, just in case. I'll take that off real quick. Now that we're on the Internet, things come back to haunt you. You know how that is, right? Well, what happened? What happened? I walked out of that beautiful restaurant, the, the, the bathroom that's, that's kind of not too bright with the mirrors that fit, do this, and I walked into the unsparing sunlight against a window that had decided not to do me any favors, right? And I saw me. I am exposed for who I am. I am exposed. You are no Bruce Willis. And I realized the truth in me is fully shown in the bright light. The rich young ruler, the Pharisees, they said, we're good people. We're religious people. Compared to whom? That's the key. Compared to whom? Because compared to God, we are all sinners. We are all like Isaiah. I'm a goner. I am undone. The only way I can stand in the presence of God, the only way I can have a relationship with God is if I have the righteousness of God. That's the only way. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. This is the stuff where we're reviewing stuff that many of you know already, but if you don't, this is so key. 
He gave us his righteousness by taking our debt on himself. And so, and even having known this for the major part of my life, it is still so hard to grasp. When God looks at me, he sees righteousness. He sees righteousness. In Ephesians, Paul tells those believers they are holy and blameless in the sight of God. Imagine that. That's you. That's you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you are the righteousness of Jesus Christ in God's sight. He sees righteousness. That's an amazing thing. That is so freeing. You are beautiful in his sight. You are Ephesians, you know, Ephesians tells it, you are his masterpiece, his magnificent work of art, his treasure. He is enough. He is enough. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3. It's just a beautiful passage. Just talking about all the righteousness he had through his hard work before he knew Jesus. He says, if anyone else, if someone thinks they have uh, reasons to put confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, the exactly right day, of the people of Israel, the right nation, of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe, the best tribe, he thought, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, I kept the law. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, I was faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom's sake I have lost all things because I consider them garbage. Which, you know, this is that little translational secret because they don't want to translate it correctly. The, the word garbage means dung. He says, I consider all my good qualities a pile of, you know what? I consider them all that because I have the righteousness of Christ now. He stopped trusting in his abilities. He stopped trusting in his accomplishments. Money, power, relationships, comfort, authority, all those things we talked about even a little bit, they will stop having control of your life because compared to the love of Christ, they just become less. And when you are struggling and going through difficult times, one of the things Jesus is saying to us is, remember who you are. Remember who you are in Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ. And then live it out. Live it out. This is that whole idea of of what Philip is looking for is what we're looking for. This relationship this imputation of righteousness into our lives so that we become people. God says, I love you with everything I have. I love you like I love my son. And Jesus, and we're going to look at this even even later where Jesus says, you love them like you love me. Now help them to love each other. And so we leave this place and we have to keep remembering, who am I in Jesus Christ? Who am I? I have the righteousness of Christ. I have the standing of the beloved. I, have a, I am a daughter. I am a son of the king of the universe. This house doesn't mean much. That car doesn't mean much. That job doesn't mean much. That bank account doesn't mean much. 
that, that retirement account doesn't mean much compared to that. And as we see that, it changes us from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word, that it was um, true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. And that as we apply this to our lives, and as we begin to see Jesus for who he is and what he did, we are transformed. And Father, there's no power in this world that can do that, transform a human heart. So we thank you for that, that we have the privilege of being called sons and daughters of the King. For it's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.